Welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. This is the second part of our full conversation with Alex Griffith, where we discuss ESG in ratings. Alex Griffith is a managing director and head of EMEA corporate ratings at Fitch Ratings. Fitch Ratings is a credit rating agency that rates the viability of investments relative to the likelihood of default. Fitch is one of the top three credit rating agencies internationally renowned along with Moody's and Standard & Poor's. In the episode of today, expect to learn what are ESG factors and why they are important in the credit rating process, the challenges in incorporating ESG factors into credit ratings, how can treasury professionals effectively contribute to the credit rating process, how does Fitch Ratings integrate ESG consideration into its credit rating process. I really loved our conversation with Alex. He truly is passionate about his topic and extremely fast on answering our very intricate questions. We hope you will enjoy the episode. If that is the case, and when you're thinking about how you found out about our podcast, chances are that it was through word of mouth, social media, or a recommendation from your favorite podcast platform. And this is our only request to you. The only way we can get more and more amazing guests like Alex and get more people to learn about treasury is thanks to you. So if you enjoy what you hear and maybe learn a thing or two, please consider following the show, leaving a review, or sharing this episode to help others discover it too. With all that being said, please welcome Alex Griffith. We would like to dive a little bit deeper into the role of ESG in credit ratings. So maybe to begin with, can you explain what ESG factors are and why they have become important in credit ratings? So ESG has been was growing up over the last the last decade or so as a as a broadly discussed concept. If I if I you know look back at maybe the history of how Fitch Fitch was thinking about this when when yeah, we were looking. I suppose mid mid last century, ESG was being talked about quite a lot, and a lot of the concepts that were being discussed were things that we were already doing. So, governance, for example, has always been a massive part of our of our criteria and our thinking. Yeah, you know, particularly having an impact in in emerging markets usually, but but sometimes in developed markets as well. So, our first thought about this was well, we're actually doing quite a lot of these these things. How can we make it clear to everybody what we're doing? So, you know, the, the first thing the market was was asking for was, you've got your credit ratings. How do you how do you include ESG in that? So, our first our first step, and and, and it happened in 2019, was to produce what we call uh, ESG relevant scores. So, essentially, what we do is we say, okay, we've just we just concluded on the ratings. The end of the committee. We've got. 14 specific ESG factors that we we think about. Did any of these specific factors have a um, a material influence on the rating? And so it's 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 an observation on what we did. It's not new criteria telling us what we should do, but it allows us to sort of step back and think what ESG factors were in here. The way that we score it, we have a one to five. So one is you know this factor. It's just completely irrelevant for this for this sector. So um, 
you know, I suppose water usage in airlines is an example. Obviously, you could find a tiny tangential way, but it's not in any way a major issue. And then it gets to three, which is the middle, which is this issue is potentially important, but also it's under control. It's not having an impact yet. So, so there's, a, there's a theoretical issue here, but the issue is controlling it. Then you go up to five, which is, okay, an, an ESG factor we've identified specifically changed the rating. So you have that gradation four is, is there's a material impact. So essentially it was, it was part of the rating construction, but not, not something which changed the rating by itself. So we, we've, we've scored on that one to five, one to five basis. That was essentially looking at what we were doing and highlighting what's important because, you know, as we discussed in, in the last podcast, the, the bulk of what we do is trying to understand the business, understand all the various risks. There's no sort of checklist of, of, of what we're thinking about. It's trying to understand the thing holistically. So if there was a problem with wildfires, you know, that's in the ratings. In fact, some of the fives that we see in, in the US, for example, at the moment, are just down to wildfire risk. So we should have picked up all those risks anyway. We then, we, you know, we, we, we came along with that for, for quite a long time. And if we look at the various ES and G factors where we have an impact, whether it's a four or a five, like about a quarter of ratings are impacted by some sort of ESG factor materially. The biggest of those is governance by, by quite a long way. So as I said, governance affects emerging markets. It can affect developed markets as well if it's not, uh, it's not up to scratch. It tends to be a negative rather than positive. So you know, if governance is fine, that doesn't necessarily raise a rating, but it, it can drag a rating down if it's, it's not fine. Second, you have social factors which change markets. And then only finally do you get the environmental factors. So about 6% of our ratings now have an elevated environmental factor, which when you're sitting there thinking about climate change and climate policies, feels incredibly low. What we therefore tried to do was think more about climate because climate is a, is a weird, a weird thing to get your head around in terms of, in, in terms of credit ratings. Cause we tend to think about we don't have a fixed rating horizon. So in theory, our horizon is, is infinite. Practically, though, we do tend to focus a lot more attention on things that are better understood, more certain, which means shorter term. So our forecasts are three to five years, for example. Things that are going to occur in that period have a lot more weight than things that are going to be you know, 15 years out, for example, which is where climate's a problem because a lot of these changes don't tend to have an impact on the companies we're looking at in any material way in a, a, a short period of, uh, of time in that sort of three to five year period. So we wanted to think about doing two things really. One was making sure we were capturing all the risks and the other was giving investors a signal of what's out there in the longer term. So even if something isn't included in the credit rating, let them know that it's out there so they can start making their own judgments as to whether they think in their analysis it should be. Because you know, credit is only one part of a, a, a pricing decision. There's also market aspects, which could potentially cause pricing to move before credit becomes a real issue. There we've, we've come up with our, our uh, climate vulnerability signals, which started off a few years ago as a series of reports looking at sectors. We've now started doing them for, uh, for companies earlier this year. So we're probably about halfway through scoring up the portfolio as we as we speak uh, and that's a scale of zero to 100 where 
the middle of that scale, so 50, will tell you you're expecting, or, or if, if the company doesn't do anything to mitigate the, the risk, you could have a, maybe a one-notch downgrade, roughly, of that company by the year that, that the score is set. So each of these is not just a point-in-time score, it's a curve, so it shows that build-up. So if you're an investor and you're concerned about what's happening to your risk 25 years out, you can look at the end of the curve and see that. If you're looking, you know, if you're concerned only about five years out, you can see that too. The signal will tell you what the potential risk to the, to the rating is at that at that point along the curve. So it's mainly focusing on the actual risk. Is there any notion of saying, especially with how the, the world is evolving lately, around saying more, okay, this company really doesn't do any effort on whatever it is, E, S, or G. Therefore, they should be a bit penalized when you look at the cost of debt, basically? Or is, it no, is there not such a, such a notion here? This was, this was a big, um, and still is a big point of debate in the market. You know, what should credit raters, others do, and what should they include in their, uh, in their methodologies? Our view has been, yeah, we, we do credit. We understand credit. So the, the vulnerability signal only looks at the potential credit impact of, uh, of, of these events. Obviously, you can do an awful lot more if you start thinking about the broader impacts. And, and typically, it's referred to as impact. All the other work that's done around ESG as to whether the company's doing good, its impact on society, the economy, on people. But we need to be, or we are quite clear as to where you know, our role as a rating agency sits, which is, which is purely we're looking at credit. Now, we do have another part of the business called Sustainable Fitch, which specifically looks at those broader factors of impact. Uh, we have our, our clear lines, but as a, as, a, as a company, we are thinking more broadly about this. And as I say, some of those things can be important because they could potentially at some point start influencing pricing and things in a different way. Uh, but we are, we are focusing on, uh, on credit. I mean, there's more I can say on on um, vulnerability signals. If you'd like to, ask I was going to ask a question. I was going to ask a very quick question on it, and maybe put you on the spot a little bit. Yeah. So I'll put you on the spot a little bit. So I'm looking at the vulnerability score right now, or the signals across industries. Signals, thank you. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, so interestingly, it says that wind and solar and electricity networks are going to be unaffected over the next well, 20, 30 years. I would assume that the vulnerability of those industries would be steady. That makes sense, meaning that they're not going to change in investment risk over time. Is that, is that what it's trying to say? Because I see things like oil production going up in terms of vulnerability. I see things like uh, petrochemicals going up, although albeit slower. Yeah. Um, so the way to read it is over time, things like oil production, petrochemicals, coal generation are going to get more, are more likely to be vulnerable as to climate change over time. Whereas electricity networks and solar are, you're saying, aren't going to be affected at all. Would they not get better as investment opportunities? Essentially, so, so we are, you know, we're all about risk. So we're trying to measure the, uh, the downside risk. So we're not, you know, we're not going sort of negative and, and measuring potential upside. What we've defined 10 as is, you know, there is potentially 
essentially that there there is no negative impact from the from climate transition and in fact there might be a positive impact there we're not trying to you know we haven't gone the other side and try and quantify the positive obviously if you're doing solar and renewables then you are getting probably a tailwind from um uh, from the transition uh, but yeah that, that's i mean that, the, the way to look at it so we're not so concerned if if, it, if it's good i mean the you know the reality is that if you look at renewables and other sectors they have their own problems so yeah this isn't saying if you look at sectors they're riskless it's just saying that if you think about climate transitions impact on them it's 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 neutral or positive at those kind of levels and albeit something something like networks are quite interesting because we're not saying they're not going to be impacted so you know i i I took the plunge a couple of months ago and put put panels on my roof now you, you can imagine the the complication of of an electricity network where you used to just pump electricity one way to moving to one where you've got to actually suddenly account for all of these random little bits of generation all over the place contributing to the overall flow of electricity and some of it comes on some of it is not you know some of it depends whether I choose to plug in my electric car or not there's a lot of investment required but the typically these sort of companies get remunerated based on their investment so so they should be they should be in a, in a reasonably good position if they're forced to expand but you know no bones about it there's gonna have to be a lot of work done by the networks to keep things functioning in the new environment yeah because you're not just factoring the risk of companies those companies being affected you're also factoring the risk of the government being able to keep up with micro generation house to house right exactly exactly i mean what you know what's interesting is is you you picked what i'd probably call the obvious examples in there which is um yeah the renewables on one side coal on the other I mean, what's what's interesting where we think we provide real value is the bit in the middle, you know, which is things like cement. So if if we step back a bit, it's it's really hard to try and do this sort of analysis because one of the first things you you run up against is no one actually knows what's going to happen. You know, no one knows what's going to happen sort of two years out, let alone fifteen, twenty five years out. So we get around that by just assuming a particular scenario and using that as our as our benchmark. We've taken the UNPRIs in their policy response, which is um, it's it's designed for investors, it's really granular, has a lot of a lot of things going for it. It's a one point eight degree scenario, which provides enough of a challenge that it gives us a little to go teeth into when we're looking at how well sectors uh, how well sectors have to have to change to cope. So we take that scenario, but the important point is we give it to our analysts. So these are, you remember people who focus all their attention thinking about looking at sectors all the time. So we give them that analysis and or that scenario and say, okay, what's the risk to your sector under this scenario? And that's a question that they can essentially answer because, yeah, we usually give them a macro scenario and say, okay, if this is going to happen, what what happens to your sector? Uh, So they can do that with a broader climate-based assumption. And it generates the obvious stuff, as we said, the you know, renewables do quite well, um, coal-fired power stations don't do so well. But somewhere in the middle, you've got the things like cement. And cement's really interesting because cement generates about 8 or 9% of the world's CO2 emissions, right? It's hugely, hugely greenhouse gas generating. But if you think about a scenario where you have potentially you know, more extreme weather, 
Uh, you need to build out electricity grids, as we were just talking about. You need to uh, invest in loads and loads of different infrastructure. Then you're going to need an awful lot of cement to do that. So actually, the price elasticity of demand for cement is very, very inelastic, which means that if they've got to pay for their carbon, if they've got to invest in experimental new processes, they'll be able to pass a lot of those costs on to the end customer. So cement ends up actually somewhere in the middle. So they're going to have to do an awful lot of work, but there's no fundamental threat to the cement industry that we can see. Yeah, you've also got some other interesting industries on there, like uh, gaming and gambling and stuff like this, which I couldn't access because I need to make an account, which maybe I'll do later. But people can go on the website and we'll put the link in below. Bringing it back to treasury and traders, Alex, if I'm a treasurer sitting in one of these companies that perhaps has a high vulnerability signal, I get the wording right, not score signal. Uh, how would I react differently as a treasurer to try and uh, improve or to try and work towards putting my company in the best position? So how should a treasurer take it? Okay, if I'm a treasurer sitting in a, let's say, a petrochemical company versus sitting in a wind turbine manufacturing company, how, how, do, I, how do I react to these differently? A lot depends on how integrated the treasury function is in in the rest of the architecture around ESG. So we see, I mean, when I speak to fixed income investors, we see loads of different organizations um, and ways of thinking about ESG within them. Within companies, I'm sure it's, it's even more diverse how they consider it. But if you've got a head of um, sustainability, then, you know, I, I would expect a treasurer to be fully on board with what was what was being discussed, what the plan is, you know, be able to to, to think about uh, that in the broader context of financing, explain it. Because I think everybody nowadays that's that's being talked to or that's 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 involved with external parties, they'll be being asked about ESG. It would seem obvious that everybody should be able to um, to discuss it, particularly if you've got those external facing roles. You know, I think I think the point at which anybody in an organization can think that ESG is sort of somebody else's problem is uh, it's, it is long past. And obviously, you know, the sort of questions we will be asking are, okay, your your transition to green steel, and you say you're going to do that by 2030. How much does it going to cost? So make sure that information is surfaced uh, in a way that, that that external parties can potentially understand. So you know, it just comes down to that point that. Yeah, the, the better treasurers we work with and be the better teams we work with are transparent. It it seems to be a formula that is uh, more effective in communicating than, than, than not. Because typically when we talk ESG in total, and we've talked a couple of times previously on the podcast, the G, and you mentioned it before earlier, earlier as well, the G is really where companies internally can have the biggest influence on, is their internal governance um, as well. A little bit on sustainability, like, making some changes internally that will help them be more sustainability conscious as, as in terms of their impact. So if you just talk very quickly as well about the G side of things, what can treasurers do that will typically give them a better rating in terms of their governance? Just for the people to understand how treasurers play a role there. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, so, so the companies that we look at where we assess governance, the governance tends to be beyond the treasury to an extent. So, so, so yeah, what we see is there's a, there tends to be sort of an overarching governance. The Treasury is usually part of that. You know, 
your 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 listeners will know all the good things you're meant to do as a as a treasury manager in terms of where you can park your money safely, having strong policies, and frankly, you know more about it than I do. So, a company that generally has good governance will generally have that that sort of discipline in place and that sort of professionalism in place. We rarely sort of downgrade or take a view based purely on what a treasury function is doing because it tends to be more more pervasive. If if the rest of the governance is is weaker, then usually that's reflected in a in a less professional treasury. They tend to come together. So, you know, specifically, I suppose the treasurer's role in this is is essentially making sure that uh, they can a discuss their policies, have clear policies in place, they follow them, uh, but also can talk more generally about governance and organisation. Again, again, it's that it's that role of a of a, of a funnel, of making sure that the information flows to the rating agency relationships again that seems to yep. be the key factor here for you and the rating agency alex how difficult what are the challenges of incorporating esg into your rating overall so we touched on like the long-term typical long-term impact of it versus you know that's not very controllable and why you want probably to be looking three to five years out where climate change is probably longer term than that what other difficulties do you have incorporating esg into your credit rating scores it really is that it's that time horizon question, and the 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 way that we've we've thought about that, and we've thought an awful lot about it, is to use the the vulnerability signal as a a means of telling us, okay, in fifteen years there might be a problem. Do we have to? You know, what's the nature of that problem? Do we see that raising its head already? So, you know, for us, it's about trying to understand well in advance what some of these long term trends are and reflect them at the, the earliest possible moment, albeit that may well be not yet. So in a lot of industries like oil, we're not seeing an impact yet on our credit ratings uh, from climate change, uh, albeit it's something that we're actually talking about quite a lot in our in our committees now. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's allowing us to make a conscious decision. I think, I think the, you know, the biggest problem is simply ignorance. It's, it's if you miss something because you know, we've got the Paris Ratchet coming up, uh, which is a, a process that was put in place during the original Paris Agreement, where they, uh, the governments agreed that they would start assessing about now whether they had the right policies in place to meet the Paris, Paris goals. If they don't, then in 2025, which is the date of the Ratchet, they will ratchet up their policies to make sure they meet it. Obviously, politics is politics, and you know, don't want to get into into what's currently going on with with, with COP processes, etc. But that's the that's the broad timetable that, that's still been still sort of in force and has been laid out. So, if that all works as planned, you would expect to see a pretty rapid acceleration of policies in the second half of this decade. Um, so, the sort of traditional, you know, wait and see what those policies might be approach isn't really going to cut it because they're going to be coming very very quickly. And you need to have thought about it in advance. So, yeah, avoiding ignorance, really thinking about it, and making sure you've got the visibility on when those risks are starting to pull forward from the future into something we need to think about today. Those are the real challenges. 